Okay, so welcome to Wild Women. Today we have a special guest. Her name is Rachel. Camille, can you tell us a little bit about how you guys met? Yeah, so we met through the women's program at Ethereal. Um, she reached out to me so kindly and I absolutely love your Instagram account. It's so inspirational. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you came to create this Instagram account? Yeah, absolutely. So funnily enough, I actually started it as um, a fitness Instagram mm -hmm. because that's what I was really into. And I kind of just thought, oh, this will be a place where I can like take, take gym selfies and no one will judge me. Um, so that's kind of how it literally got started. But then I started to really open up about things I was going through. At the time I started the account, um, I just graduated college. So this is 2016. And I was starting to kind of explore my mental health more. Um, I considered recovery, all that good stuff. And the more that I looked through things like sobriety hashtags, mental health hashtags, the more I saw that there is a ton of community on Instagram in particular. And I never experienced anything like that. Um, I was very much raised to think that mental health and all that is just something you kind of deal on your own. Um, mm. Like maybe you go to therapy or something like that, but it was very much, um, just something you kind of deal with on the side, you really don't talk about it. And I discovered all these amazing recovery accounts, mental health accounts, where people were just being um, so vulnerable and so open. And there was a lot of um, solidarity and transparency. And that was something that I desperately needed um, because I was very much dealing with a lot of things on my part, but I really didn't feel like I had a um, community in real life. So that kind of transferred over. So I always like to say that it is um, an account for the former party girl. So anyone that maybe they um, did a lot of self-destructive behavior, maybe they didn't really grow up in an environment that encouraged self-love. So they're kind of trying to figure out, you know, where to go from there, how to find other people that get it. So that's, pretty much the gist of how it came to be was just to make sure that no one went through it alone and that they could find someone that um, they could identify with. And what made you choose sobriety? Yeah, so I, I always say kind of sobriety chose me <laughs> because um, I was raised very sheltered. Um, I wasn't allowed to party in high school. I really didn't get to um, experiment with alcohol or drugs or anything like that in high school a few times, but um, for the most part, I saw it kind of as like this forbidden fruit. So when I got to college, um, I went to college a few hours away from my hometown. So I was very much the uh, stereotypical sheltered girl that goes wild in college. <laughs> so for a while that worked for me, um, just because I definitely saw alcohol and partying and all that as um, I always say social currency. So that was kind of like my golden ticket in to acceptance and validation. And it worked for a while for me. Um, I definitely was a party girl and I loved every second of it. But I started to see a lot of red flags um, very early on. Like I would always be the one that took it too far. I started to black out very regularly. I started to um, drink at quote abnormal times, um, lie about if I'd been drinking, stuff like that. And there really wasn't any example of, you know, those red flags because when you grow up, sometimes you see um, people like say, oh, alcoholic or whatever. And you think like the super extreme, but I think what a lot of people don't realize is that 
you don't need to be an alcoholic to question your relationship with a substance, especially if it's bringing harm into your life or if you are just not happy with your relationship with it. And so um, after college, I definitely did a lot of trial and error with my recovery. I definitely learned what to do and what not to do. But for me personally, alcohol has not really done anything productive for me. And I'm going to be, I celebrated two years sober in May. It's been a really eye-opening journey and not even just because of the alcohol itself, but just learning how to deal with life on life's terms. Mm -hmm. Well, congrats on the two years. Thank you. A lot of people don't think that they can be an alcoholic or need like a sobriety journey when they're at a young age. Mm -hmm. Um, So what would you say to people who um, like don't believe in it, who don't believe that people who are young and are still in college or working a lot are abusing alcohol to an extent where they should probably consider cutting it out completely? Yeah, because honestly, that was the thing that kept me in the dark for so long because it was so normalized around me. I was in Greek life, um, which of course is very much party centric. Um, so it can be really challenging. Like that was a huge thing for me. And I think the biggest thing is first of all, storytelling. So even just like coming on here and telling my story of, Hey, like I thought partying was the only way to feel validated. And even when it was affecting my mental health, like I would wake up the morning after with like a hangover and an anxiety attack and be super depressed Mm. the whole day. And I'd be like, well, hangover, you know, but everyone gets super depressed after they drink, right? And the more that you hear other stories and you say, hey, that's kind of a red flag, the more normalized it is and the less scary it is because I feel like a lot of people feel kind of broken if they are dealing with something like substance abuse or just not being happy with where they are. And I feel like storytelling is a huge component of that. And also normalizing sobriety, (laughs) like normalizing the, like I sound like an after school special sometimes, but just normalizing the fact that, hey, you don't have to drink all the time or you don't always have to do whatever at every weekend. And that's okay. Like that doesn't make you a loser or boring or anything like that. Everyone deserves a break now and then. So I think thankfully now, especially with social media and all the communities, um, we're definitely smashing a lot of stigmas. But I think the biggest thing right now is um, storytelling. Yeah, it's really important. What did you see improved once you started recovery and sobriety? Yeah, well, the first thing was definitely my mental health. Um, Like, hands down, I am diagnosed actually with anxiety and depression, which is a really fun combination. And that was the first thing that I saw a significant decrease in. I still manage symptoms just because brain chemistry, but a lot of people don't realize is alcohol is a depressant. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's going to make you feel like it's a, I always um, define it as it's almost like alcohol gives you this super high serotonin boost, dopamine boost, one of those boosts. (laughs) And then when it comes crashing down, it's almost like in the negatives. So it's even further than when you first began. So it definitely allowed me to kind of maintain some sort of homeostasis in my brain. And then also allowed me just to kind of clear out all the BS. Because for me, I always say that my life was kind of like a cycle of damage control. So Mm -hmm. I drink, take it too far, do silly things, 
wake up the next morning hungover, kind of do like damage control, whether it's like send an apology text or just feel all the shame and guilt and cutting that out of my life kind of leveled the playing ground, if you will. Like the fact that I could wake up in the morning and be like, oh, I don't have to regret what I said last night. I can just move forward from here. Like that was a totally new concept to me. So that was the biggest thing I noticed was just a more level playing field to meet my brain where it was at and not have any um, substances alter it. Mm. Did you have to cut out some people in your life when you started? Honestly, I was very, yes and no. So uh, thankfully my core group of friends that I've had since college, they literally saw me through everything. Like they saw the whole uh, mess happen. So when I told them I was considering stopping drinking, they were more relieved if anything. I think they were happier for me than I was for myself. And that was really good. But one thing I did notice is that I call them bar buddies where you see them at parties and like you kind of bond if you're drinking, but after that you really don't have any common ground. Mm -hmm. um, those kind of fall away. But it was one of those things that I had to learn um, just to not take personally. Like everyone's on their journey. If we don't vibe because we aren't drinking buddies anymore, then maybe there wasn't anything there to begin with. And that's something obviously that's going to depend on your level of recovery, whether like you were, your, your group of friends was like the only people that you hung out with and they say, oh, well, you're not drinking anymore, you're cut off. Like it's going to be different for everyone. But that is one thing that I've definitely learned is that if your relationships or your friendships are only based on, you know, bar excursions or partying or anything like that, then you're going to learn really quickly who your real friends are if you choose to get sober. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. No, your Instagram account, and you mentioned it earlier, it's, there's a lot of like fitness orientedness to it. Um, can you tell us the role that fitness played in sobriety? Yeah, so I actually have always been uh, into fitness. So I played volleyball for I want to say like eight years. Um, I quit in high school because it just got burnt out. But fitness has always been there for me, even in college when I was drinking a lot. Um, and it was really funny because I kind of used fitness as my like balance towards partying. So it really kind of canceled each other out, to be honest. But yeah, fitness was a very big tool in my early recovery just because for one thing, it gave me an incentive to not drink because I cannot work out hungover for the life of me. I do not know how people do it. Oh, I, I, I hate it. So like if that was one thing where I was like, I would um, schedule a group class or something in the morning and be like, okay, like I've spin class at 9am and I know that if I get drunk, I will not make it and I already mm -hmm. paid for it. So it kind of just created some um, skin in the game sort of thing. And it also is really good when it comes to just channeling emotion, because I think a lot of people don't realize that when you are however you move your body, whether it's dance, fitness, whatever sports, you can channel a lot of like frustration, anger, anything really. So I've definitely had like days where I'm feeling really triggered and I'll just, you know, go to the weight room or we have a garage gym and I'll just blast music and just drown my own thoughts out for like half an hour. And that has been really therapeutic for me. So it's different for everyone, but it has always been a constant in my life, which I'm very grateful for. How important is accountability in recovery and sobriety? Super important, um, especially for people that if they're anything like me, I tried to moderate my drinking and use. Like I literally would do like 
any rule. Like, okay, I'm only gonna have three drinks. I'm only gonna have wine. I'm gonna have water between. Like I was very much raised like, will, like willpower. If you can willpower your way through, you can do anything. And there comes a point when you're dealing with a highly addictive substance that that just doesn't work for some people. And that mm-hmm. is make you broken. It's literally like, it's an addictive substance. Of course, it's gonna not be that simple. So yeah, accountability was huge for me, especially when I would be home alone, um, especially like in early recovery, I had a lot of time to myself. And that is definitely a very easy way to not tell anyone if you're drinking or using or whatever. So I had to text my mom sometimes or text my husband, now husband, and just say, hey, like, I'm feeling this or however. But no, accountability is huge, especially if you are the kind of person to like justify your way through whatever. And thankfully, there are programs and then there are, you know, communities that you can reach out to, which is fantastic because um, one of my favorite sayings is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And that's Mm. definitely resonated with me a lot. Who were like the most influential or supportive people? Um, throughout your journey? Yeah, so my number one is my husband. He has literally seen me through everything. We've been married for four years now, and we we started dating when I was still very much a party girl. And he, we actually don't remember how we met because we were both very drunk at a party, so there you go. But um, he's been such a patient and loving person, especially because he definitely saw me at my lowest points and he didn't judge me. He didn't like, he, he was just, it was unconditional love. So I owe a lot to him. And I actually was, a, it's been a really good learning experience for us both because he really didn't get the concept of addiction. He thought, like I said before, it was like a willpower thing or just being selfish or something like that. So it was a really good learning experience for him to learn how to recognize if I'm feeling triggered or if I'm having an anxiety attack or whatever. So it's been really, really helpful for both of us just to become more emotionally intelligent. And then also my mom. My mom has definitely been a huge supporter. She also really doesn't fully get it, but she does her best to learn. She definitely listens if I'm, you know, trying to tell her something that she might not understand. So those are the two main contenders. There obviously is a ton of support and love, which I'm deeply grateful for, but those are like my, my go-to people. What is like a day in the life for you? Like what are the type of um, routines that you've adopted now that you're sober to uh, maintain your sobriety, to limit your triggers, to make yourself feel better, those kind of things? Yeah. So I think the best way to describe it is if like it was a weekend day because during the weekdays, like even when I was in active addiction, like I would go to, I was in college, like I wouldn't really drink. It was more of just when I drank, it got really bad. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's a really big misconception some people might have is like, if you are addicted to something or if you have a problem with something, they think like, oh, well, you're drinking in the morning every day. And there's different, it's a, it's a spectrum. So for me, my biggest triggering times is during the weekend because, um, Obviously, a lot of our friends still drink, but we're still friends, um, which is possible. So my biggest thing is having a game plan. So I always make sure that I have a non-alcoholic beverage on hand. So if we're going to a party, I'll bring my own thing and I I get really creative with it. Like that's one thing that people sometimes think like, oh, you just have to drink water at a party and be boring. No, like you you deserve flavor too. (laughs) So 
have that, um, have an exit plan if things get too rowdy, because there have been definitely times where I'm at a party and like, it starts off chill, but then everyone gets, you know, trashed and you're just like, oh my God, get me out of here. So usually I'll drive myself or I'll just have a go-to plan if I need to Uber home, whatever. And then also just do, just staying plugged in. There are thankfully a ton of books and podcasts and um, just a lot of resources for people that are in sobriety or considering sobriety or just interested in learning about it. Um, there is a ton of that. So staying plugged in and just hearing different perspectives, different ideas, different stories, it really helps you um, just remember why you're doing this in the first place. Do you put boundaries as like a priority in your relationship and friendships? Oh, absolutely. That's one of my biggest um, topics that I love to, I love to talk about. Um, just because when I, the, the first time I actually ever took boundaries seriously was when I went to treatment in 2017. So I literally had gone like almost 23 years, not really, I knew what boundaries were, but I didn't really know how to implement them um, mm -hmm. because I was a huge people pleaser. I still kind of am. Um, I was a huge goody two shoes. Like I was the, the little kid that like, if we were playing some a sport, I would give you the ball just because you wanted it. Like I was such a goody two shoes slash doormat. Um, and unfortunately I got taken advantage of a lot because of that. Um, people saw my kindness for weakness. And that's one thing that I always love to kind of hit home is you can still be a kind, loving person and still set firm boundaries. Um, there has been a lot of ebb and flow, especially when I was in early recovery versus now. So for example, in early recovery, when I kind of was just like, everything just felt on edge, um, I would tell people, Hey, do you mind not drinking around me? Or, Hey, um, if everything, if, if people are getting too drunk, I'm going to probably leave. So not even telling them what to do per se, but just giving them a heads up of why I'm setting these boundaries, why it's important to me. Because I think a lot of people, sometimes they tell people what they want, but they don't specify why. And so mm -hmm. it kind of just seems like you're just telling people what to do and people don't like that. So just to make sure people understand that it is a reciprocal thing and that that way I'm able to be the best friend or wife or coworker or whatever. So boundaries are huge and everyone can benefit from them. Everyone should learn about them even if it's a little scary because coming from a recovering people pleaser I still sometimes get a lump in my throat when I'm standing up for myself but it is absolutely necessary. Can you tell us a little bit about treatment for you yeah. because obviously your alcoholism was a little bit how do I put it N not what people think it would be you know? Yeah yeah no it yeah it was Honestly, I never thought it would get to the point where I can highly consider treatment. Um, and that is one thing that I'm definitely not ashamed about, which has been really eye-opening for a lot of my friends, because I think when people think of rehab or treatment, they think of kind of like Lindsay Lohan or Malibu or just very like, oh my gosh, you were a train wreck kind of thing. And for me, it was very much kind of just like a moment of surrender because mm -hmm. at that point, um, this was in 2017, I had been quote in recovery since 2016, but a lot of it was kind of just go like make it up as I go. 
So I really didn't have a, like a program or a structure or anything like that. And it was very apparent that whatever was working for me or whatever I was trying wasn't working for me. So it got to a point where I was quote, trying out drinking again, but even like, I, if I took that one sip, all bets were off. Like I wouldn't be able to tell you if I was gonna have one glass of wine or completely blackout the next day. <laughs> so it got to a point where it was almost like, okay, it's not up to me anymore. And it was a moment of surrender. And I think that's definitely when it shifted for the better. So treatment, I went there for 28 days from October, 2017 to November, 2017 and stayed there, did the whole inpatient thing, which was fantastic. And it was very helpful. I got to know a lot of people from a lot of different walks of life. And it definitely teaches you how addiction or anything like that, it doesn't discriminate. Like I am very privileged. I came from a very well-off family. And there are people there that have been homeless for years. And when you're in those rooms, you are no better or no worse than anyone else. And that's a very big lesson in humility. It's a big, big lesson in humanity. And obviously I don't think everyone should go, but if you do go, you are gonna get a very big wake up call as to you are not better or worse than anyone else. And you are all in this fight together. So it was as much of a lesson for me as it was for a lesson for how I um, react to other stories as well. Mm. Um, did anyone ever give you like tough love or you came to the realization that you needed to slow down or cut the drinking on your own? Um, both of it, honestly. I think in my heart, I knew <laughs> even, um, even when I was in college, it was very, I, I kind of had this huge cognitive dissonance because I felt, I always said it was like my evil twin came out. Mm -hmm. um, Cause for me, a lot of my drunkenness was unchecked feelings, a lot of bottled up emotions. So especially freshman year of college, I went through a really bad breakup and I really didn't get to process it. I didn't allow myself to process it, I should say. So when I got drunk, I would, it would come out like I would get angry. I would cry for no reason, all of these things. And people saw that, people were really concerned about it. And I you know, tried to play the tough girl. I was like, I'm fine, I'm fine. But people definitely show concern. I actually went to therapy for the first time sophomore year, kind of after a mini intervention from my friends because they were like, okay, clearly something's up and you we can't risk you you know have lashing out when you're drunk so thankfully there was services on our campus on our college campus but i still found it to be really shameful at that time at that time i still kind of saw therapy as like a punishment mm. so thankfully that's obviously changed i love therapy now my therapist is the best but it took a lot of tough love from my friends and it sucked because i knew in my heart like i said that they were right, but I'm so dang stubborn and so used to willpower that I was like, thank you for the concern, but I got this. And obviously it got to a point where everyone knew that I didn't have it. And eventually I learned that I didn't have it. So yes, a lot of tough love, a lot of just concern, because whenever you're dealing with something like that, from the outsider's point of view, you have to remember that unless the person wants to help themselves, like you can't help them. And that's really sad. It's really disheartening, I feel sometimes. But at the same time, it reminds you like you can love someone, you can try to fix them as much as you can, but until they want it themselves, then not much progress is going to be made. So thankfully, <laughs> I've had a lot of really amazing support and I am eternally grateful for them.
So you talk about like parties in college and like a really big topic right now, even in academia is hookup culture mm-hmm. and how there is a set of like routines, behaviors, like talk, actions, all about like partying and the hookups, you know, from Monday of that week to Friday, you're just talking about the parties and then Sunday it's like recovery and then Monday it starts all over again. And it's just like a constant cycle. But what they're saying is that the issue is that there's no really other talk on campus, you know, like for the people who don't want to drink, who don't want to be a part of, how do you put it, consensual, casual sex, that kind of stuff. So in your opinion, what do you think that they could adopt at universities to change that culture that's so ingrained into the system? Yeah, um, I think a lot of things is alternate alternate activities that don't suck <laughs> because I there weren't like God bless my college, but there were so many times where it's just like it just felt so just kiddy. You know what I mean? Like they would have movie nights, which were nice. They would have all these things, but it was just very. You were just thinking like I because I went to a few of them, and the whole time you're just thinking, oh my God, I could totally be at a party right now. And so I think a lot of things that would be really nice would just be, ah, how can I say this? Because it's, it's a tough question, to be honest. It's, it's something that you really don't think about unless you don't like see yourself in that culture. Because like, yeah, you said it's so ingrained. Um, I think one good thing would be just to have a place where people can openly talk about mental health, self-care, all that stuff. Because I feel like once you find groups that you identify with or groups that you maybe like, maybe you drink occasionally, but you're not the kind to go to a huge party or anything like that. Then that equips you to find common interests. Um, Like I know some friends that love doing poetry, slam poetry, um, book clubs, hiking, stuff like that, depending where you are, obviously. But yeah, the biggest thing is right now just finding alternatives. Thankfully, there has been a lot of peak in social justice issues, activism, stuff like that. So that's a really good thing to pour your energy towards. Um, Yeah, honestly, I think it's about finding common ground, finding common interests, not being afraid to discover hobbies and practice hobbies, even if you suck at them. That's one thing I definitely struggle with in college was because for me I thought my worth was in my grades I thought my worth was in partying and that's it there was no like no common ground of anything else like there were so many hobbies I let fall by the wayside just because I was so ingrained in the party culture so that's one thing is if you have hobbies if you have uh, creative pursuits I think that there should definitely be more awareness and more space is set to practice that and not just like dance class or art class or anything like that like actual place where you can be like hey we're all gonna do a painting night or something like that just just stuff that like you really don't think about or you don't think could be a fun activity until you actually do it <laughs> um you talk on your instagram also about ptsd do you want to elaborate a little on that yeah so i was in a an emotionally abusive relationship in high school and it definitely taught me or definitely conditioned me, I should say, to walk on eggshells and to always see, to be gaslit and to always just kind of not have myself being taken seriously. And so for PTSD, I always like to say that it, trauma lives in the body. 
trauma lives in the body even if you think like you're over it quote over it there have been times where like even 10 years later i'll hear something or i'll hear a song that my ex used to play and i'll just break down crying and it's one of those things where you like unfortunately ptsd is still kind of in the developing stages how to treat it i know there's edmr i know there's stuff like that but there is a lot of misconceptions about PTSD I feel still like some people still think it's only like military can get it or that it's like you just didn't get over it stuff like that so I think the more we learn about it and the more that we bring awareness to the symptoms it's going to be easier to have compassion for for people that do have it and for people to even realize that they might have it because there was actually I had a friend who unfortunately was assaulted and she thought she was okay and she ended up having all these really similar symptoms to me and I was like hey like, I don't want to diagnose you, but it seems like you might have some unresolved trauma. And she ended up going to psychiatrist and officially got diagnosed with it. So I am a huge advocate for people, obviously not self-diagnosing, but to take their symptoms seriously. Because that's, especially as women, I feel like we have all these symptoms or we have these, you know, whatever going on with us. And we're told, oh, it's not that big of a deal. You're overreacting. You're being emotional. And F that, you know what I mean? Like our, our emotions and our symptoms are completely valid. So bringing awareness to it and encouraging exploration of those symptoms has been a very huge passion of mine. That's awesome. Yeah. And so a lot of people, they're, they have a fear of change, you know, it's out of their comfort zone to change. And I'm sure that you experienced that a little bit too, if you were so comfortable as, you know, a party girl. And uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything, but like um, a lot of people feel like a loss of identity sometimes too. Oh yeah. So can you speak to that a little bit? Just like how you like overcame those challenges of like the identity crisis or like uncomfortability, that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, that was a huge thing for me was especially when you put so much of your identity into other people's opinions. <laughs> that is so huge. I still tell people like I'm X amount sober and I still have identity crisis and that's totally normal. I think that's just the human condition is to constantly question like, what do I stand for? What am I interested in? Cause I'm 27 and I still tell people that are like teenagers, like dude, like <laughs> it's, you do not have to figure it out. So in terms of identity crisis partying, I think the biggest thing is to look inward and ask yourself, when did I start caring so much about what people thought of me? Mm-hmm. Because when you look at kids, or for the most part, when you look at children, they do not care about what anyone thinks of them. They are out there living their best life, being loud. And whether it's middle school or high school, I personally was bullied a lot. So that was a very young age. I started to condition myself like, hey, if someone doesn't like you, you gotta change or you have to adapt, I should say. So I think a lot of self-reflection is huge. A lot of journaling. Um, Thankfully, there is a ton of journaling prompts that you can just look up um, depending on what you are currently battling. Journaling is huge just because it allows you to kind of put your thoughts onto paper. Um, Because that was a huge thing for me was I would have like all these spiraling thoughts and it would just get so messy that I didn't even know how to comprehend it. And I would just end up getting overwhelmed. So when you're able to write and put things down on paper and just kind of locate patterns saying, hey, I have a really strong connection with people pleasing, or I have a really strong connection with avoiding conflict. Let's explore that. 
and just kind of to look at it through a more compassionate lens instead of a judgmental lens because there are so many things that I feel like people just kind of suppress or they're like oh like I have this toxic trait but if I don't think about it or if I just suppress it then it's gonna not hurt anyone but unfortunately I learned the hard way that when you suppress things or you don't deal with it they're gonna show up differently it's in Mm -hmm. different parts of your life so I think that's a really huge thing is to not be afraid to confront parts of yourself that you might have suppressed or parts of yourself that might not seem good like it's very it's very important to not just focus on you know staying positive and happy as much as we'd love to because that's not life and so that's a huge thing is journaling obviously if you have the means to I am a huge advocate for therapy because it just allows them to kind of organize your thoughts for you like there have been so many times where I'll go to therapy I'll just ramble and she'll write everything down and just kind of categorize it for me and be like okay let's focus on this right now we can talk about this next week it's so helpful so to wrap up that rambling I would say yeah for anyone going through kind of an identity crisis is just kind of ask yourself what what is it that you fear the most about yourself or not even fear Mm -hmm. the most about yourself what is it that you are scared to work on and ask yourself why. And like I said, look at it through compassion instead of judgment. I love it. It's so important. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Oh, my pleasure, dude. I love, I love this stuff. (laughs) Is there any last advice you would like to give our listeners? Yeah, probably the biggest thing I'm going through right now is just, just kind of going back to boundaries because especially right now, the world seems like it's kind of on fire to protect your energy because Mm -hmm. you cannot give to others if you aren't filled up yourself. And people can be so draining and it's not your responsibility to coddle people's emotions. That's a big thing for me. And you deserve deserve as much happiness as anyone else. So that's what I'm dealing with right now. (laughs) Awesome, thank you so much. Of course.